So, Joe Bielig, have you heard about Canvas Candy? I know about Canvas. I don't know what Canvas Candy is. Is this... Wait, wait, hold up. I saw you had a an email newsletter thing come out that said something along the lines of going beyond Canvas or making Canvas better or had something to do with that. I have not read it. It's sitting in my inbox at the moment. <laughs> But I'm guessing that's what this is about. What is Canvas Candy? Yeah, that's that is exactly what this is about. Uh, Canvas Candy is an add-on for Obsidian that gives Canvas superpowers. Uh, have you used diagramming apps like Miro or maybe OmniGraphle in the past? Yep, I have. Okay, so if you go from those to Obsidian Canvas. The thing that you'll most likely notice is that you don't have many options in terms of like shapes or stencils, anything like that. So sure. Canvas Candy is, it's pretty brilliant the way that it works. It's a CSS snippet that you install in your vault and then it adds a whole bunch of classes that you can apply to the cards in Obsidian to make them different borders, different shapes, apply headers to cards, all that kind of stuff. And uh, basically turns Obsidian Canvas into like Miro Light, which I think is pretty awesome. Uh, when I first started using Obsidian Canvas, I think I started that email newsletter with like something along the lines of when I first used Canvas, I didn't really get it. <laughs> I was like, what's the point? I'll just sure. go use those diagramming apps. But there's something about having the ability to have the notes in your vault and the files that are in your vault be on the Canvas itself. And uh, so I find myself doing more and more there, but getting frustrated with just the the rounded rectangles and the limited color options and stuff like that. So Canvas Candy allows you to do some some pretty cool stuff. You can create Venn diagrams because you can make like the color fills opaque and all that kind of stuff. It's uh it's pretty awesome. I've got a YouTube video that I'm working on. It'll be published before the episode goes live. It's not available yet, but I've got a bunch of different examples where I'm walking through that. But if you use Obsidian Canvas at all, you definitely should should check this out. It's a $20 add-on by Tools for Thought Hacker. I'll put the link in the show notes for people. And if you buy it before the end of November, I think it's 25% off. So you can save five bucks. And I just love tools like this that, and this is what is awesome about Obsidian is that you can extend it and add new functionality to it without uh, having to write a, um, a whole bunch of whole bunch of code. Um, it's a little bit clunky because you do have to have the metadata in the cards and you have to apply the CSS classes and kind of my way of working around that, which I stole from somebody in the Obsidian University community, was uh, to create my own text expander snippets. So you have like the different exactly categories. Exactly I was going to say. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So you just select from the drop down, like this is the one that I want here. And um, But yeah, Canvas Candy is, uh, is a pretty cool product. And I think uh, if you're an Obsidian user, you should probably go check it out. It sounds really cool. I know I've used like the diagramming tools just to kind of lay out like process workflows more than anything. It's like, okay, whenever somebody asks me for a computer rebuild, what does that mean? What does that look like? What are the steps? Now I could, in that particular case, I could just put an outline together, like a checklist of sorts. But there are a couple points in that process where there's like decision tree type scenarios. Like if this, then you go this direction. Otherwise you go that direction. Uh, the, in that particular scenario, it's if there is data on the computer that needs kept, there's a backup process. If not, just go at it. So it sometimes is helpful to have a diagram for that. 
I've not historically used Obsidian for that. I've always used Pages. <laughs> as weird as it is to say that, because it's stupid simple to just drop like shapes and stuff in there. So you can just put your headers, put your shapes in. Like that's historically what I've used. So I am lame when it comes to all the graphing software that's out there. Uh, this sounds way better as far as like visual and long-term usage goes versus just my simple pages docs. Yeah, I mean, you will love this thing. The thing that I think might be a stretch too far for some people is going to be the metadata and the CSS classes. Sure. But for you, it makes total sense. Anybody who's not afraid of plain text, uh, this, is, this is pretty cool. So yeah, definitely uh, go check it out. But I don't have any other announcements or anything, and we have very limited follow-up here. So I guess I can report on my action item that I failed to do, which was to write a press release for Obsidian <sighs> University. I'm keeping this on the list, though. I'm going to do this. Just the timing isn't right. I'm not doing a, a launch for Obsidian University. I'm in the middle of the life theme cohort. My, my focus is right. on the faith-based productivity stuff currently. And uh, as I told you, I finished this book at 10.30 last night. We're recording this in the morning. I didn't get a chance to make the outline until about 20 minutes before we sat down to record. Uh, just been a really busy couple of weeks for me. I'm coaching basketball, turns out, for uh, my son's high school team too now. And that started this morning, which is awesome. Um, speaking of the life theme stuff, I guess the one thing that I've discovered in the last couple of years is that coaching is my jam. <laughs> I'm really good at it. <laughs> nice. Uh, I actually had a kid that I coached middle school soccer. He played on the high school team and we went to Toby had a national tournament in Tennessee that we went to. And uh, I went up to him after the game cause he got a chance to, to play as a, a freshman a little bit. And I told him he, he did a, did a great job, you know, and, and uh, just trying to encourage him. He's kind of hard on himself and is focused on the mistakes that he made, stuff like that. And, um, just like out of the blue, he starts telling me, he's like, man, you're the best coach that I ever had. He's like, you taught me everything that I know. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, well, thanks, Aiden. Didn't expect that. <laughs> and since that, you know, I've, that's actually happened a couple times now um, in the <laughs> last month or so. So it's given me confidence. I always just kind of thought that like I, I coached and I did it to to fill a spot because no one else was was doing it. Um, right. But I've gotten enough feedback now that like, I, I guess I'm, I'm pretty good at it. So I, I don't mind, you know, that's another thing to do, but it's uh, definitely a thing that, that gives me life. So if I were to summarize the life theme cohort in a nutshell for people who haven't signed up for it, it is find the things that bring you life and then do more of those and everything else is going to fill it in around it. Uh, yep. You'll have the clarity to say, you know, that thing that I didn't get to that's okay because it's not really hitting the mark. Coaching is one of those things that, that hits the mark, but means that uh, it's been a little bit hectic in Mike land. So, so Mike's been busy. That's what I'm hearing. Mike's been busy. That's my really long excuse for not writing a press release, but I am going to do this uh, in conjunction with the next obsidian university launch. So um, that will be, by the way, you heard it here first. Uh, it'll be mid-January, so if you're not on the email list, you can go download the Starter Vault, and you'll find out about that kind of stuff. Um, I've also got a Black Friday deal that I'm going to be doing. I don't know if people will hear this in time to take advantage of that, but uh, I'm going to discount the Obsidian 101 course 
But when people buy that, because it's normally $97, I'm still going to give them the $97 coupon that they can apply towards the cohort when it opens. Okay. So it's basically like getting a, um, I'm going to give it for, uh, I'm thinking 40, 40 bucks off. So it'll be 57 nice. instead of 97, but you pay 57, you get a coupon for $97 that you can apply towards the, the next cohort. Plus you get Obsidian 101 so right away. So it's like a free $40. Yeah. Yeah. So that's the idea. We'll see, see how that goes, but <laughs> I have been like, people are already starting to load my inbox with all the black Friday deals and stuff that are coming. It's like, good grief. There's so many emails in here. So I will say like <laughs> this time of year, it's, it's one of my favorite filters in my email is to have a search for anything that has the word unsubscribe in it or a URL that has unsubscribe or opt out or there's like four or five different words that it searches for. And if the email has any of those in it, it will show me a list of all of those. But my favorite is the inverse of that. So anything that doesn't have <laughs> any of those. So then it like takes me all the way down to just the stuff that somebody has sent directly to me and pulls all the cruft out. Uh, it's probably similar to what mm. SaneBox does, but I built it and I know that it's just there and I didn't pay for it. <laughs> so there's there's that. <laughs> nice job. Yes. Gotta love Black Friday time. <laughs> I hate Black Friday, but as a creator, you kind of have to do it now. <laughs> yeah, it's true. I suppose you don't have to. I know some people who don't, but... True. Well, when you are trying to figure out how you're going to pay the bills... <laughs> Yes. <laughs> Black Friday Doing something does help. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, should we uh, start talking about today's book then? Sure. Because this has the potential to be a longer one. Uh, the hidden potential, you could say. But <laughs> 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 All right. So, yeah, today's book is Hidden Potential by Adam Grant. Adam Grant is a professor at Wharton and uh, wrote. Think Again, I think, was the book that we we covered yes. previously, right? Yeah, and I really enjoyed that book. Uh, and when I saw he had a new one out, I had pre-ordered it, and it just so happened that the timing of this being released um, fit in with me picking the, the next book. So that's honestly why I, I picked it. And um, it does not disappoint, I don't think. It uh, is very Adam Grant. Um, I feel like if you've read Think Again, I don't know about his older books because I haven't read those like Outliers, but uh, it was kind of exactly what I expected, which was a, a very entertaining read. And um, it's broken down into a prologue. Part one is skills of character. Part two is structures for motivation. Part three is systems of opportunity. And then the epilogue. Uh, which is just a couple of pages, but there's actually quite a bit in there and uh, a lot of personal story as he wraps this one up. Uh, it is literally, like it says on the cover, a book about reaching your potential. And I think that maybe is polarizing uh, when people pick this one up. Some people, probably the majority of the people in the bookworm audience, that is going to be intriguing and they're going to want to pick it up and read it because of that. But there is definitely a type of person who will look at this and say, nope, no thanks. Now, this kind of lines up with the growth mindset stuff, and he does talk about that actually 
in this book, but it's not, I'm not going to draw those lines there and say, you know, if you have a growth mindset, you're going to be interested in this book. Uh, but just recognize like there's, there's no, uh, there's no trickery in this one. Um, the subtitle is the science of achieving great things. And that is exactly what you get with this. Uh, first impressions as you picked up this one. Uh, my first impressions came from the backside of the cover. Actually, I, I was, you know, you know, typically when you pick up a book like this, you have a bank of other authors who will do the praise section and the references for the book piece, the testimonials. That's typically who you see on this list. And he does have a couple of authors here, but I, I was kind of struck by the names that are showing off this book. Uh, let me know if you've heard of any of these. Serena Williams, Mark Cuban, Malcolm Gladwell, Yo-Yo Ma, and U.S. Navy Admiral William H. McRaven. Uh, those are some big names mm -hmm. that are showing the praise for this book. And if you've got some people in that territory who are singing the song of this book, it kind of makes you wonder what's in it that's making them say that. <laughs> so it's, it's either what makes them say that is the first option there. The second option is he just has really well-known friends and is just using that to get his book to sell. So it it's kind of sits in one of those two territories. But honestly, it's probably a little bit of both that, <laughs> yeah. that takes it there to be completely frank. And it, it, made me stop and think through like just just that particular piece like okay this is something i should probably pay attention to like typically when you, i see this list and then there can be a very long list of testimonials like i'm not always going to read all of those because it's very easy to like they, they get to where they're saying the same thing over and over but he has very few very well known names uh sing out about this particular book so my, my initial impression was just, okay, this is something I should probably pay attention to. All right. Well, I'm going to burst that bubble just a little bit, I feel, because- Okay, um, go for it. I There's a conversation going on in the faith-based productivity community right now about this book called Arte. And okay. uh, it's I pre-ordered this one too. It came yesterday as we record this. It's something like 900 pages. So we're not reading that one for book one. <laughs> <laughs> I do a double episode and skip yeah. one at some point. <laughs> I bought it because that term arte, David uses that on focus all the time. And I like that, that term. He uses it to describe like the ideal version of the roles in his life. And so yeah. when I saw the the cover, I'm like, I have to get this just to find out if it's worth recommending to him. <laughs> but uh, apparently I did not realize this, but there's a, a company associated with it and they have an app, which is like, hundreds of dollars a year for a subscription. And uh, I haven't looked at the marketing pages, but some of the people in the FPP community were saying that the marketing is really aggressive and it just rubs them the wrong way. And then someone pointed out- Arte? Yeah, but, but somebody pointed out that Cal Newport wrote one of the blurbs. <laughs> and I really like Cal Newport. And then um, I, I don't know, like I don't have facts to- to support this, but um, someone had basically told me, and this makes a lot of sense, that those blurbs, uh, people don't have the time to read all those manuscripts, and they get asked for so many of those blurbs that literally it's a, it's like a, a transactional sponsorship sort of a thing. 
So yeah, they're putting their name on it and they're, they're putting their stamp on it. Um, I would think that the people that we really uh, follow, the people that resonate with us, they're not going to treat that lightly, but it's also probably not that they read every single word in the book and they are saying, yes, this is my personal endorsement. I would be doing this if they weren't paying me anything. Yeah, th- th- it's a business transaction. <laughs> well, that completely shot my entire view of testimonials on books. Thanks, Mike. Sorry, sorry. <laughs> but uh, I like these the selection of these testimonials. I like the names. Yo-Yo Ma is an interesting one because uh, I grew up playing classical violin. And so I'm very familiar with, uh, with Yo-Yo Ma. And probably a lot of other people have heard the name, but never heard the the music. Like we've got a bunch of, when I was growing up, they were CDs, but Yo-Yo Ma CDs. <laughs> like I'm, I'm used to, to listening to, to that, that kind of stuff. And I like the fact that he, he got uh, testimonials from people across a, a bunch of different domains. Obviously Serena Williams is another one that isn't in the standard productivity space. Um, I think that's a, that's a good thing. The diversity in the recommendations, I think, is is kind of cool. So I think that you're right that these recommendations are, are these blurbs are actually more well put together than a lot of the other ones, but yeah. also they're blurbs. And so yes. recognize what's going on there. <laughs> At least the one by Malcolm Gladwell starts off, I read Hidden Potential in one sitting. Like that's how it starts. So I would be very hesitant to think for him to put that on there had it not actually happened. Sure, sure. It would seem odd to me, just from his branding and such as well. That's the only one that actually says anything about how they read it. So it's very possible the other (laughs) four are definitely in that category. But I don't know. Yeah. Well, let's jump in here to uh, the prologue. And uh, this is the very beginning of the book. I don't have a whole lot written down for this particular section. Uh, kind of setting the stage for the rest of the the book. And I, I think even though there's nine chapters here, we'll probably tackle it part by part as opposed to uh, chapter by chapter, but we'll we'll basically just go go in order here. Um, now the prologue, one of the things that kind of jumped out to me here is that he says, when, what one person can learn, anyone can learn if the conditions are right. And that is uh, maybe if you feel like you have a growth mindset and feel like you have grown a bit, your initial reaction to that may actually be a little bit negative. Like, oh, well, I thought I was doing the right thing and maybe I was special. And he's basically like, nope, you just need the right conditions. (laughs) But on the other side, if um, you haven't got a great start, that's really encouraging because it means that you have the ability to set your own course, determine your own course of action and potential isn't where you start. It's really how far you're going to go. So really the takeaway from this whole book is that we should be looking to maximize our potential. Part of that is the the conditions. So figuring out what is the ideal environment and the right ways for us to, to learn these things and, and grow and achieve that potential. But ultimately um, what counts is not how hard you work, how much effort you put into it, but how much growth actually happens. And so that kind of blows up the whole 10,000 hours of deliberate practice, makes you a master sort of a thing. And the word deliberate there kind of is a misnomer because we've both read 
that book. And um, we know that you have to practice in a specific way with the intention of growing. He talks about that in in this this book as as well. Uh, But most people, they focus on the number. And so I'll just put in the reps and then the results are going to be there. Not necessarily. You got to do it the right way, not just do the the thing. And so that's kind of what he's saying here at the beginning before we get into the the real meat of the book. Yeah, and he starts this off with a story about two schools competing against each other in a chess tournament. And one of those schools is known for teaching kids to play from kindergarten on and has been winning the championship of the area. I don't remember the details on it right now, but the competing school that he's referring to in that situation is made up of kids who started learning chess in middle school. And by the end of the tournament, this big ordeal, the kids who started later, which isn't like an underprivileged school as well, and it's filled with students who it's not following the stereotype of what kids would be, like what people normally thought of at the time as being star chess prodigies. And they were able to tie for first in the process and beat some very formidable opponents in the process. So like that's that's kind of his background. It's like, okay, you have this group who's been learning this from a very young age, but then at the same time you have this group that started later, learned very intentionally using a lot of the things that he talks about here in the book to then match their level in a much shorter amount of time. So I, I just think that's fascinating. Uh, on two fronts, one, the obvious, the underdog story that everybody loves uh, and two, I've just been playing a lot of chess lately. So it's been something <laughs> that's been super interesting to me. So there's that. If you want to play chess, chess.com, hunt me down. I'll play you. <laughs> <laughs> Toby's been into that lately. He'll hunt you down. You <laughs> should um, tell Toby to send me a, a game and I'll I'll let him destroy me. <laughs> all right. Yeah, I, I forgot the the chess story was at the beginning of this this book, to be honest. Um I like that that story. I didn't jot anything down in the outline as takeaways from it, partly because I feel like I've heard this story before, not this exact one, but I actually played chess growing up and there was a group that was through the YMCA that we were a part of, but we would play these tournaments. We'd go to different high schools and and play. And there was actually a a kid who was a little bit younger than me who was a part of that group. I, I was okay. I was never all that great. But there was a kid in our, our group who started off okay, and then just it started to click. And he ended up going and winning the national tournament when he was 12 years old or something. Yeah. And uh, there was a PBS documentary about him. And I remember like my brother <laughs> and I were extras in, the, in the, the spot that they did for him on, on public television. Uh, but there was a movie that I watched back in the day. I'm looking it up now. It, it was made in 1987, it says, called The Mighty Pawns. And it's basically that story. It's a, a, the, the tagline here, a struggling bunch of misfits into national chess contenders. And uh, it's kind of this, the story that Adam's talking about. It's the, the people who don't normally play the, the intellectual games. And some of the specifics with the, the team that was really bad, it was um, a group of kids who were kind of, they didn't have the same opportunities. Like one kid learned to play because he was at the park and the drug dealer who was there taught him how to play. 
Yeah. <laughs> like not a great situation that these kids are coming from, but you know, to Adam's point, doesn't matter how you start matters, how you, you finish. So it's kind of cool that, uh, that the mighty pawns movie looks like it's on, uh, uh, Amazon prime. I may have to make my family watch that with me and I'll be all nostalgic and they'll just be like, dad, this is dumb. <laughs> you watch the queen's gambit. No, I didn't watch that one either. I remember hearing about it, but most of the movies about something that I care about, I can't stand watching. Like anytime that there is classical music in a big motion picture and someone's like pretending to play the violin, it just it drives me nuts. And yeah. <laughs> they, they don't, they're holding it completely wrong. <laughs> well, I know to, to give you some faith in the Queen's Gambit, I know that, so you know, you probably know Magnus Carlson then. Him and Hikaru Nakamura, so a couple of really big names in the chess world, both said it was really well done. And apparently they had a couple of, and I don't know who they were offhand, but had a couple of really well-known world champions from the past as advisors for like how to set up the game. So the games themselves that are played in the TV series are actually really well done. So they're... There's like only one where there's like a real serious blunder in the game. So, yes. All right. So, yeah, I think you'll be okay with it. For the record, there is a second series they're working on, which is Beth Harmon, the main character in it, playing against Bobby Fischer. So there's that. Mm, I may have to give that a shot. By the way, recommendation for people who want to learn how to play chess better. Best book I ever read, and I read lots of them, is Bobby Fischer Teaches Chess. It's designed where you have, it gets increasingly harder, but there's basically a board with an exercise. And then when you flip the page, it shows you the answer to the exercise. And uh, it's always like on the right side of the page. So you read through it that way. Then you flip the book over and you go back through it. <laughs> sure. Uh, and it's uh, it's a really good way to to go beyond the basic or elementary chess strategy. Sure. All right, enough about chess. Let's go on to uh, the first <laughs> Sorry. part here. Yeah, I, I thought the prologue would be the the short part. I didn't know we were going to get sidetracked Whoops. with a conversation about chess, but I like it. All right, so part one is skills of character, and there are three chapters here. Chapter one, creatures of discomfort. Chapter two, human sponges. Chapter three, the imperfectionists. And maybe we'll break this down chapter by chapter. Maybe these will tie together. Uh, I will say the way that it's written he definitely approached it chapter by chapter. He even talked about how one particular chapter, he really had trouble thinking of the way that he was going to tackle writing the the material. Um, and it, he does a good job with the flow inside the chapters. He's a really good storyteller to your point. You know, he even shares a story in the prologue, but every single chapter has a very good story. And then he talks about the principles and he kind of wraps it all up by, uh, introducing the the outcome of the the story at the end and then kind of hammering home you know this is what happens when you apply this this principle but they are definitely self-contained now chapter one creatures of discomfort uh, this is essentially saying that we need to get outside of our comfort zones he says that the best way to accelerate growth is to embrace seek and amplify discomfort and i like that he says that learning styles are a myth now the way that he approaches this, there's tons of research that goes into this, but he doesn't recite the studies for you in the text. 
he just basically says there's hundreds of studies and if you want, you can go dig them up. But essentially he's saying, I've done the research so you don't have to. And so what that leaves you with is this statement, learning styles are a myth. The follow-up question to that, if you are someone who believes in these learning styles is like, well, Mike, uh, what do you mean? Like, show me some evidence. And I really can't tell you because I didn't go back and read all the, the studies that Adam Grant did. Um, but I, I think you can tease out the, the principles here. Um, basically, it kind of makes sense to me anyways, if you think about it, because the way that you like to learn is what makes you comfortable, but it isn't necessarily how you learn best. I don't know if it's in this first chapter, but kind of at the heart of this whole idea with the the uh, the learning styles. Um, I talked about this actually in the first section of the Life Theme Cohort. It kind of kind of came up that we uh, we want to do things that we've mastered. That's when things feel comfortable. However, the way to master something is to do the things that are uncomfortable. <laughs> so it's kind of this catch 22 and uh, ultimately we should be flipping our mindset on this. And instead of just doing what's comfortable because that's what we've mastered, we should be leaning into the, the discomfort. And um, the other thing that uh, I really liked from this chapter is that procrastination is not a time management problem. It's an emotion management problem. I have probably heard different versions of that, but it never really clicked like that for me. So Procrastination, I think, is probably the biggest thing that people deal with when it comes to the uh, time management. And so, I don't know, at least the, the people that I've worked with, that always is something that people struggle with. And I struggle with this myself sometimes. And um, it leads to the symptom that everybody feels is like, well, I don't feel like I have enough time for for everything. And uh, it's easier, it reminds me of the, the saying that it's easier to act your way into a better way of feeling than to feel your way into a better way of acting. So I don't have an action I'm associated with this, but kind of the, the thing it leaves me with is this incentive to just do the hard thing. And as you do it, it's going to become easier. Yeah, I, I like the beginning of this part because he has a, there's a chart there, but it's not actually, it doesn't really need to be a chart, but he's basically referring to how to get better at something. And there's four different ways to do that. One is to change your DNA. Not exactly easy to do. Uh, two is to start before you can walk. Three is to sharpen your mind. And four is to strengthen your character. And the graph simply shows that more than half of the benefits of these is attributed to strengthening your character which is where he leads into this discomfort piece and and being willing to work through things that you're not good at it it is interesting to me that we're so afraid of making mistakes and going down that road of discomfort and trying to figure out how to do something that it prevents us from getting good at things and, and getting better it, it's so fascinating to me partially because i'm terrible at this like I will absolutely avoid things because it's uncomfortable so I don't improve in certain areas when I could you know even even silly things like I think of myself as a decent sound person and running sound for bands and large venues but I always feel like the like the imposter syndrome thing is there and it just seems like I'm actually not that great and yet whenever there are 
events, like for example, a, a friend of mine who runs a sound company is hosting a kind of a, a sound console demonstration by Yamaha. So it's basically a showing off a new soundboard is what it is. And I got invited to go to this demonstration. But I have a very strong hesitation to go because it means I'm going by myself. So with a group of people, I don't know. I'm only going to know the guy in charge and he's not going to have time to talk to me. And he's already told me that. So like, I'm going to go and see nobody that I know. But they're going to be talking about things that are probably over my head and things I could pick up from. So I'm absolutely going to go. But it's extremely uncomfortable to me as an introvert to go do that. Like I, I really have no emotional or motivational interest in in going to this, but it's probably the absolute best thing I could do because I know they're going to be talking about things that I could learn from. So yes, it's uncomfortable. Should I do it? 100%. Am I going to do it? 100%. But I'm going to hesitate until I get there. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you bring up the introvert part and I feel like that's kind of interesting, but also is the perfect segue to the next chapter. So let's go there if you're cool with that. Because I feel like with uh, introverts, you don't necessarily, you, you, you're kind of like the fly on the wall. You want to hear and, and understand what's, what's going on. So chapter two is human sponges. And I feel like that idea of a sponge, that totally fits with an introvert. I think it's probably more natural for an introvert to be a sponge than for an extrovert to be a sponge. Now, I, I could be wrong. But uh, he he talks about the later on in the book some of the the ways that the traditional uh, work culture has been to promote the people who talk the most. <laughs> Those aren't really the the good leaders. And uh, I feel like if you're an introvert, though, you you are just kind of naturally absorbing, and that's what he's talking about with the the sponges. He talks about absorb it absorptive capacity, the ability to recognize value assimilate and apply new information. And if you're constantly doing something, I feel like that kind of works against what he's talking about here with the the human sponge effect. Now in this section, he talks about kind of coaching and mentoring and uh, the two different, the differences between being polite and being kind, which I think is really important. Polite is withholding feedback to make someone feel good today, but being kind is being candid about how they can be better tomorrow. Now, obviously, you have to balance those two, and he shares a story about someone who sought feedback from one of her mentors, and then when he gave her very direct feedback, she got a little bit emotional about it, but she checked her emotions because she realized that this was good feedback that was worth applying. And that gets into the critics, cheerleaders, and coaches part. He's got lots of these little like here's three different uh, three different ways or two different you know lots of like those little lists that are built into these chapters which I, I found very effective. But a critic is someone who sees your weaknesses and attacks your worst self. A cheerleader is someone who sees your strengths and celebrates your best self. And neither of those are ideal. <laughs> and I feel like those are the natural ones. If you just go online, you will find the critics. If you just go to your your inner circle, your family, your close friends, those will be your cheerleaders. So you can't go to either of those two groups. You really have to like develop a relationship and find a coach who is someone who sees your potential and helps you become a better version of yourself. So 
as I was reading this, obviously, that's one of the things that kind of opened my eyes to uh, the coaching stuff that I talked a little bit at the in the follow-up section, why I think I am uh, decent at this, I'll say. <laughs> I don't think I'm really great because I don't have a ton of knowledge when it comes to these these things, but I, I know enough to to help middle schoolers and high schoolers understand the game, basically. So, and I really like helping people get to uh, a level that they couldn't get to on their their own. So that's kind of the thing that that makes that that work for me. So how do you find people like that? How do you kind of test the waters and see who might actually be a good coach? This is one of my two action items from the entire book. Uh, ask for advice, not for feedback, which is what you can actually do better. There's a subtle difference there, but as a content creator, this makes total sense to me because I've done drafts of videos or articles and then I share it with somebody and be like, hey, can you give me some feedback on this? That's the that's the the words you use. <laughs> and really what that means is that someone is going to read it through and probably they're going to say, oh, I liked it. It was really well written. And one or two sentences about, about things that you did well. Or, no, this really isn't working. But there's nothing specific in terms of what I could do as the author or creator of this thing to make it better. And that is the advice piece. So advice is not just what's your natural reaction to this, but it's more like, what would you change about this to make it better? Which I feel opens up the conversation to a lot of a uh, lot more potential help if you really are, are trying to learn and grow through the process. This, this topic of advice versus feedback is the biggest point I wrote down from this entire part. And I, I, I was trying to figure out why this struck me so much. And it's not, this is not a new concept. We've talked about this before, right? So the, again, this is not new, but something about the way he posed it struck me a little different. But I started processing, okay, the, the word feedback, when somebody asks you for feedback, it, it kind of has two connotations, whether they're correct or not is beside the point. But when someone asks you for feedback, generally, at least my first response is something general, not a specific thing about whatever I'm giving feedback on and positive. Like, tell me what are the general things I did well? That, that seems to be the general idea when somebody asks for feedback. But if you just use a different word, like you can have the entire same sentence structure but use advice instead of feedback. But when you do that, it, it kind of has this intentional interest in knowing what the specifics were, not the general piece that comes with the connotation of feedback, but it, it has this idea of specific and improvement. It's not necessarily like, tell me what I did well. It's like, okay, tell me the specific things that I could improve on. And it's, it's, again, it's a simple one-word change. I don't know why it's that big a deal, but it certainly is. I guess words are important. Who knew? But the, the thing I love about that is it doesn't mean you have to change really anything about your process. Like if you're going to ask for feedback, we'll just stop asking for feedback and ask for advice. Like it, it's that simple. Yeah, exactly. Uh, that's actually a good spot to go into the next chapter. So if you're cool with that, we'll jump there because... In chapter three, the imperfectionists, one of the, the things that I jotted down in my MindNode file was when sharing a first draft, don't ask for feedback, but then there's a different strategy that you can use here. Ask for a score. And 
subtle difference there, but as it pertains to the imperfectionists, um, this is important for battling perfectionism. I think this is the chapter where he talks about his experience as a diver. I had no idea that Adam Grant was a diver and was trying to make the, the U.S. Olympic team as a diver. But uh, his coach told him after he graduated as a, a senior in, in college that he had done the most with the least amount of talent of anyone that he'd ever coached. That was like his big takeaway. Yeah. It was like, I, I've succeeded then. And um, he said that when diving, you can't, his tendency was to be a perfectionist. And you really can't do that, especially when you're learning a, a new dive, like it's going to be horrible <laughs> and you have to do it a bunch of times, but you have to continually push yourself to learn new dives. Otherwise you just get stuck in these, you know, the, the basic routines I've dealt with, with perfectionism myself. So i I feel like this chapter resonated a lot, but there's three things that he says perfectionists tend to get wrong. They obsess about details that don't matter. They avoid unfamiliar situations and difficult tasks that might lead to failure. And they berate themselves for making mistakes. Does that apply to anyone else or just me? <laughs> no, it's just you, Mike. But the approach of just do your best is the wrong cure for perfectionism. And I never really thought about that before. I've probably even given that advice before. Uh, the two key questions, and I thought about making this an action item and building it into my daily questions, but I don't think I want to formalize this process. It's just something that I want to continue to kind of noodle on. Uh, did I make myself better today and did I make others better today? I like those questions a lot. And if you are just trying to get better and make others better, I feel like that is a great prescription for keeping the perfectionist monster in its cage, <laughs> let's say. Because I don't think you can ever really, uh, really eliminate it. But uh, what you want to do is not try to be perfect, just aim for a high target. Try to be excellent in everything. How do you do that? Make yourself better. Make other people better. And uh, success, he says on page nine, or 75, is, is not how close you come to perfection, but how much you overcome along the way. In other words, how much growth that happens. The fear of mistakes is the piece here that I think is crucial, at least, at least personally. That, that's the one that will get me more than anything, just because I know like if I... If I feel like I'm going to make a mistake, well, I didn't do it right. And what are people going to say about me or what are people going to think because I didn't do that well? And this is, and, and I bring this up because it's something I've been trying to do for a long time. So this is not like action item worthy because it's something that's already been in action for a long time. Uh, is, and it's just that I'm trying to make sure that I point out when I'm making mistakes when I'm around my kids so that they can see that I'm okay making mistakes, calling it out, and then trying to figure out how to do it better the next time. Because I want them to pick that up. And if dad's not willing to do that, why on earth would they be willing to do that? It, it requires eating a little bit of humble pie <laughs> more than I care, but I'll eat the humble pie if it means that my kids are going to learn how to deal with mistakes that they make because guess what? We all make mistakes regularly, whether we admit it or not, the, the main difference is how do you respond to that? So that's the piece that I want to make sure that I'm enacting. And that's just acknowledge when I'm making a mistake, be okay with that, learn to be comfortable with that process to go back to a previous chapter, but also trying to help my kids learn that as well. Yeah. I like the, the example you uh, 
you shared of, of calling it out in, in front of your kids. Um, one of the more powerful things I think you can do as a parent is to gather your kids together and in front of them, admit you were wrong and ask for forgiveness. <laughs> I hate that. I hate that so much. I, I do it and it's necessary. I just hate doing it. <laughs> yep. Yep. But it's also, I don't know. I mean, I, I do it too, but I remember the first time that I did it, it, it doesn't feel natural. I don't think that's the default for a lot of families, but that's the thing that builds trust in your kids. This is not the uh, the family parenting podcast. I got a different one for that, but <laughs> <laughs> it's really it's really important. And uh, I think at the root of that is kind of what you were um, alluding to there. The whole chapter is the imperfectionist, right? So as a parent, the the default is to just well, I know this stuff, and you don't ever say it this way. But the message that gets communicated is that mom and dad are perfect, and that's not necessarily the case. Well, it isn't the case. And so let's be real here. And what that does is it it brings trust with everyone in the family because you're being authentic and you're willing to hold yourself to the same standard that you're holding your kids to. So kudos to you for that. All right. Uh, part two is structures for motivation. And again, three chapters. There's three chapters in each one of these parts. It is perfectly balanced. <laughs> Chapter four is transforming the daily grind. And actually, I should say uh, before we get to chapter four, each one of these parts has a couple pages that goes along with it that does a good job of summarizing the the part. Um, That completely breaks my mind node, though, so I don't take notes on those sections. (laughs) (laughs) You know, with pen and paper, you can just add a different section. It's okay. Eh, It's true. It's true. But most of the time... And with this one specifically, because Adam Grant is a really good writer, there's probably some stuff and he even shares like snippets of stories that don't appear in the the chapters, but I'm not capturing all the stories anyways. And the ones that he really spends a lot of time with, those are the ones that I'll, I'll uh, right. capture or the ones that really resonate because the goal here is to understand, going back to how to read a book by Mortimer Adler, there it is, ding the bell. Uh, we want to understand what the author is saying and then decide what we're going to do with it. So I find those like little introductory sections for the the parts not as necessary as the the chapters themselves. That's my rationale. Anyways, chapter four, transforming the daily grind. This one's about habits. Woohoo! <laughs> habits and routines, really. There's definitely elements of James Clear's Atomic Habits here, although I don't think he's really tackling it from the same direction. But really, what he's saying in this chapter is to learn to love the process. And that the best way to learn is to translate that daily grind into a source of daily joy. And I have long shared this whenever I do like my, my webinars or create created courses on habits, stuff like that, that uh, you, your preferences can change. So when I first started going to the gym, I hated it. No, it doesn't feel good to start working out. But then after you've done it enough, after the workout, you feel good, you feel energized. And so that feeling becomes the one that my mind attaches to. And when I don't work out now, I feel off. It, it feels a little bit uncomfortable because I haven't, I haven't gotten to that, that end state. And so I went from hating working out, hating running to loving working out and loving running. But uh, it wasn't a, a simple process. It wasn't just telling my brain, okay, now you're going to like this thing. But if you stick with it, 
long enough, you can actually learn to love the process. Um, there's a bunch of stuff in here. It uh, talks about the, the musicians in this part and how um, elite musicians are rarely driven by obsessive compulsion. And uh, that kind of makes sense why Yo-Yo Ma is on the, the, the blurb there. Uh, it makes an important distinction in this chapter about the difference between burnout and bore out, which I think this is worth the price of the book alone. Just understand this. Burnout is the emotional exhaustion that accumulates when you're overloaded, but bore out is the emotional deadening you feel when you're understimulated. So these are two ends of the spectrum, flows in the middle, and I feel like the natural tendency for a lot of people is to, at least my personality, go real hard, burn out, and then go do nothing. And so that's going to lead to the bore out. And I feel like I've been in that place too. And you get to that point and you're like, what the heck? I thought this was going to make me feel better because I'm not, I'm not burned out anymore. But I feel like uh, the real approach here, the, the aha moment for me from reading this chapter is you have to balance these two. So rest and relaxation isn't a waste of time. It's an investment in the well-being. You got to find the margin. I'm just hitting all those books that we've we've read. Um, but it, it, you got to be careful not to go too far to to one end or the other. I think there's a you know in in this particular section he's talking about this daily grind, right? And there's a story about Steph Curry in here about a game that he plays with himself. 21 where he's trying to mm. score 21 points in less than a minute that now for Steph Curry that would just mean just hit seven threes and you're done and he could do that in probably 20 seconds but the the kicker with that is that he has to run to mid court and back every time he makes a shot so it means that he has to hustle so it turns the process of practice into a game that wears him out, forces him to make shots under stress, and doesn't just let him take shots under easy situations. And that's why he's become, one of the many reasons why he's become such a great shooter. So that process, that process of taking something that you're going to do as practice and turning it into a game, into play, it's something you're going to already do, but if you can make it into a game or you know, something you enjoy doing, that that certainly helps the process. I don't really know how to apply this one personally. Uh, you know, I, I think about things like running sound, like how do I get better at that and how do I turn that into a game? I'm not really sure what that means. So it's something that I want to explore. I don't really have an action item around that. It's just something to keep in mind, I think. Just be aware of it. But again, I haven't quite figured out what to do with it. It sounds really cool, though. <laughs> I think uh, the game is to get it as loud as you can until people complain. <laughs> I, I do that already. That's that's simple. I ran across this is so church services running sound, right? I ran across a meme or it wasn't a meme. It was an interview. It was like a panel. And the question was, how loud is too loud on a Sunday morning? And the guy, one of the first guys, he's like, he like quick grabbed the microphone. He's like, more subs, more salvations. That was his immediate <laughs> response. It's like, oh, I, I could get on board with that. <laughs> That's funny. All right. Next chapter five is getting unstuck. And uh, the story here is about a knuckleball pitcher uh, named R.A. Dickey. This was a really fascinating story because R.A. Dickey was one of the 
big prospects and everyone thought he was going to be amazing until someone noticed that his arm hung a little bit weird and he was missing a, a ligament or a tendon or something. So he was never going to be able to get all of the velocity that he needed to, to throw the, the standard pitches. And so, um, he tried to figure out new ways of doing things and he came across this pitch called knuckleball. He's like, I'll try to do that. But there was nobody out there who could teach him how to do it. <laughs> so he was trying to find as many coaches or guides as, as he could ended up talking to Tim Wakefield, which was an opposing pitcher. And he was the the one other guy who actually knew how to throw the pit, throw the pitch at the time. And, uh, he just kind of like went and gleaned whatever, whatever he could from whoever he could, whenever he could. And uh, that is to illustrate the point that he's making here that sometimes you don't really know what the next thing to do is. And uh, really what you need, he says, to start moving, you don't need a map. All you need is a, a compass. And this is something I say all the time. I actually have a slide that that says that in the life theme cohort, <laughs> you don't need a blueprint. You need a compass. Uh and the tendency is, well, we got to have it all figured out and we have this big project and we're just going to knock this out piece by piece. But really, you just need to know what the the next step is. And um, when you're looking to figure out what the next step is, don't necessarily go to the experts because in this chapter, he talks about how if you are taking a new road, the best experts often make the worst guides. So you need someone who has that same mindset and is able to figure this out. And likewise, if you're going to try to help somebody else out, you can't just like tell them, well, this is exactly what you need to do. They need to walk the path themselves. So you have to, he used this, this illustration of dropping these pins for them to pick up and put on their own map, which I thought was, was a, a very cool visual. To go back to the story about R.A. Dickey, you know, he, he had all the experts, like he had all of the big name, like pitching coaches, but they couldn't help him learn to throw the knuckleball because that was such an odd pitch that they didn't know how to do that. You want to throw a fastball? You want to throw a curveball? You want to throw a slider? Sure, they're all in. Like they can they can show you how to do that. And depending on your ability will dictate how well you can execute those pitches. The knuckleball? Like that's not a normal pitch. So your standard pitching professionals can't help you with that. So you have to go outside the norm. That's where like creating your own guidebook scenario comes in. It's like, okay, well, if you're going to do something that's not normal, you got to find the few people out there that have had some success and follow them. Because, like, for example, R.A., his pitching coach, it's like, well, if you're going to throw the knuckleball, it's a slower pitch. It's around 60 miles an hour. Now, if you know baseball, fastballs are in the 90s. Like, these are fast pitches. And the knuckleball is not because it's just harder to throw. But... He found out through talking to three or four different people, it's like, well, you know, you need to come down through the center of your body. You need to throw your hips forward. You need to, all these things. Well, he was incorporating all these different things that he learned from this person and then this person. Put it all together, and his knuckleball was around 80 miles an hour, not 60. So it was just a lot faster than what people were expecting. Now, the thought, you know, having grown up playing Little League, like, the concept of hitting a knuckleball moving at 80 miles an hour, like, you've got to be kidding me. Like, no, that's not happening. Hitting a fastball at 80 miles an hour is hard enough. 
Well, if I, you I if you that. throw it right, that's the the hard part. Yes. Is the reason it was successful at sixty is it's such a break, and you're you're if you can get them to think you're throwing a fastball and then throw a knuckleball at sixty, you're behind, and so the, the hitters on their their heels. But if you mess up and your knuckleball isn't dancing at eighty miles an hour, there's enough time in the big leagues for them to adjust and they just smoke yes. it, which is why he has the record for the most <laughs> home runs given up or something Correct. like that. But he didn't let it discourage him. So yeah, I want to say it was six home runs in a game mm-hmm. off one pitcher. Like that's that's a bad day. <laughs> yep. But you're gonna have those bad days, uh, especially if you're trying to learn something something new and. Um, it doesn't just all of a sudden click and then it's easy. Talks in this chapter about how uh, a sense of progress doesn't require those huge gains. Fuel can come from the the small wins and progress is really noticeable in a single snapshot in time. So that actually leads into the next chapter real well. So let's go there next. The uh, sixth chapter is defying gravity. And the reason that this ties in so well is that on page 147, he talks about how making progress isn't always about moving forward. Sometimes it's about bouncing back. So yeah, you want to continue to make those small gains, but eventually you might hit a wall and you got to try something completely different. And um, yeah, that really, so that's the connection there. But then the rest of the chapter is about uh, teaching versus coaching, uh, essentially. He talks about the, he's got these two circles, uh, a Venn diagram about teaching versus versus coaching. Uh, teaching others builds our competence, uh, but coaching others builds our confidence. So, and this kind of resonates because uh, ConvertKit, you know, teach everything that you know. And that's like great advice that I've, I've heard and applied myself. When you create something, you try to teach something, you're not trying to teach everybody and, and show what a master you are, but you're just trying to find somebody who is... Uh, on the same path as you, but not quite at the level that you're at. Like basically they say, right for you from two years ago, that sort of thing. But the best way to learn something is to teach it. So I think we should all be looking for ways to do this. When you got kids, it's easy. <laughs> as long as you take advantage of the opportunities that are presented to you, there's always opportunities to, to teach and to coach. Um, and then the other thing that kind of goes along with this is that it's more motivating to be a giver than a receiver. And that kind of reminded me of uh, Arthur Brooks and the Second Mountain. I just had a conversation with somebody about that the other day, that if your vision doesn't include other people, then it's it's too small. Uh, and then the other thing that I jotted down from this chapter, which is kind of an outlier, but something I thought was interesting, called the Golem Effect. When others underestimate us, it limits our effort and our growth. I never really thought about that before. And that's not really... When I read that, it wasn't about like, where have others underestimated me? But really, it was just kind of an encouragement. Don't underestimate other people. Put them in positions where it is going to stretch them and maybe they are going to fail, but that fail- failure doesn't have to be fatal. It doesn't have to be the destruction of the, the dream. It, it's a necessary part of the learning process. So really just as I'm coaching and then even as a parent, don't underestimate your kids don't underestimate the the players on the the team, um, because I never really thought about it that way. But I don't want to be the person who holds someone back from doing something great just because I don't see the potential in them. This is the chapter where Carol Dweck is brought up with the growth mindset. I don't know if you have notes on this, but it it's where he mentions that because they're colleagues, if I remember right. No. 
No, they're not. That was um, Angela Duckworth is a colleague of his. Anyway, Carol Dweck, I guess, according to him, has recently demonstrated, to use his words, has recently demonstrated that a growth mindset alone does little good without scaffolding to support it. I thought that was interesting mm-hmm. that Carol Dweck, who's like the one who's who everybody mentions when it comes to growth mindset, of course, has some of the research to say that, you know, if you have a growth mindset, that's great. That doesn't naturally mean that you're going to become an expert in a field, become a professional, become great. Like it, it doesn't mean that. You have to have the scaffolding, the support structures, and the drive around that to take advantage of it, to continue to push that and, and continue to learn. Which once you say it out loud, it's obvious. But to have a little bit of the science behind it to support that, I think, is helpful. But I, I did think it was interesting that he at least called that out. It was a very quick, like, two-sentence thing, but he at least did call it out. Yeah. Uh, I missed the that this was the part with the the mindset stuff, but it totally makes, makes sense. Um, I guess I didn't jot that down just because we have a whole other book on when when you've done an entire episode on a book you don't tend to write the little note down about it that's a two sentence thing yes i get it but the larger point there and the encouragement for people is that when you're reading these books take notes on the things that resonate don't try to recapture the whole structure of the the book and recreate everything that the author has said i used to do that with my book notes when we started uh started the podcast and it was really stressful so yes (laughs) don't worry about that anymore All right, let's go to part three. And part three is titled System of Opportunity. And chapter seven is Every Child Gets Ahead. Now, the story that is associated with this is Finland's rise in standardized test scores compared to other countries. And kind of how shocking that was because most of most people believe that it was going to be the asian countries that did the best and the scandinavian countries typically didn't perform very well and all of a sudden finland is just shooting up the charts and people are like well what's going on here and essentially what it was was their commitment to invest in every child and they had this saying which i really like don't waste a brain and uh, there's a lot of specifics about like why it worked and why it didn't work in other countries that tried to copy it and why it stopped working, yada, yada, yada. I don't have a whole lot of notes actually from this, this particular section because the one thing that really stands out to me from this was the looping that they did where they have the same teacher for multiple years in a row, which led to higher math and reading skills. Because the teachers that were in those looping classrooms could specialize in the student, not just in the the subject. And it made me think, like when they was talking about that, I was like, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Why don't we do that in the U.S.? <laughs> well, we homeschool, so we we loop the whole way through. But <laughs> uh, it made sense to me that that would be a difficult thing to just completely change classrooms every single year and then talks about how the high school students in the U.S. have depression and anxiety rates, which are three to seven times above the national norms. And yeah, it's a stressful 
environment. <laughs> so I don't know. I, I I think there's not a whole lot of specific action to be taken from this unless you're going to choose to homeschool and, and craft your own school, I guess. Maybe you have some conversations with people at your PTA conferences and stuff like that. But I don't know. It kind of kind of is what it is at, at this point. So this chapter, I actually didn't like this one all that much. It felt a little bit like that Ken Robinson book that we we read and just sort of a indictment about like, here's everything that's wrong with the traditional school system, <laughs> which I'm like, yeah, I guess I agree with that, but it's not a fun section to read. <laughs> yeah, the, the looping thing was fascinating and it, it makes sense. Like if you're a homeschooler, this immediately resonates because... In, at least in, in our case, I know that when you get to year two, you already know your students and what their strengths and weaknesses are. Like you already know that. You know their personality. You know what helps them learn the best. And you can then apply that into this new material. So each year that goes on, you learn more about how they learn and you know where they're progressing. But you also know three years ago, they struggled with this concept. So now they're probably going to need this particular method because this particular method worked when we had this issue three years ago. You have some of that that can happen. I don't know how you replicate that in a standard United States school system. I just don't know how you, like you'd have to have ridiculous amounts of notes about a student and the teachers would have to spend way more time than necessary reading those notes to get caught up at the beginning of the year. So it just seems like that would be a huge undertaking to to get that done instead of trying to like cookie cutter everything. So it, it's a fascinating concept. Obviously it works seeing Finland's scores. So it's worth exploring, I think. But that's coming from a homeschooler who will tell you to homeschool. <laughs> well, he even says that he talks about kind of how Finland got to that point and it was uh, a national undertaking. Like we're going to do this different so that sort of revolutionary change is not easy. So it's kind of right. like, what do I do with this other than homeschool? I don't know. <laughs> yes. All right. Let's go to the next chapter, which is mining for gold. Uh, this one kind of talks about how the best teams aren't necessarily composed of the smartest individuals. And uh, this kind of gets into teams and or in an organizational setting. That's kind of the the tone here. And there's lots of things in here which made me think about my time at the uh, the marketing agency. There's definitely some some concepts here that people should look to apply in those particular those types of settings. So one of the things that he talks about is that icebreakers and ropes courses can build camaraderie, but they don't develop the pro social skills, which I thought was interesting. So basically, they can develop a connection amongst the people on your team, but you have to teach them the pro-social skills in other ways. And that's not necessarily easy. Um, he also kind of addresses the, uh, the myths around brainstorming and collective intelligence, mentions that we actually generate ideas better when we do that individually. The better use of collective intelligence is brain writing, he calls it, where you develop those best ideas together. I've definitely seen that myself. 
Uh, and then the, he introduces the term psychological safety, which this was something that came up quite a bit um, in the uh, company that I was with, which is the environment where people can speak up. So like this whole section is kind of like a mini HR manual. <laughs> However, just knowing about this stuff is totally different than actually being able to apply it. He talks about how it's easy for managers to find reasons to say no, kind of based on that, that ladder system. And uh, you can have managers, you can have leadership teams, you can have people in positions where they're making these decisions and they understand the concept of psychological safety, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they can implement it. So I don't know, like the, what this chapter did for me is kind of tee up all of the other business books that I've, I've read about building great teams and like the scaling ups and the pinnacle and all that kind of stuff, which that is the kind of stuff that I really enjoy doing. Um, so obviously this chapter didn't go deep enough for me, <laughs> but I did like what he had to say about some of this stuff in particular, the Babel effect. So if there's one takeaway, I think from this chapter for, for people who are trying to get more out of their professional teams it would be don't give in to the Babel effect, which is choosing the people who talk the most when picking leaders. <laughs> that requires a whole nother set of criteria in order to pick those people, which was part of my job when I was at the, the day job was setting up those systems and revamping the hiring systems and, and things like that. But this is the default. Like this is what will happen if you aren't careful and you aren't working against this. But you have to have a vision for what that alternate system is, is going to look like and who you're trying to, uh, who you're trying to select for those, those different positions. If you just go with the person who appears to be the, the best fit, you're going to have the wrong people in the wrong spots. Yeah, I have some flashbacks of corporate brainstorming sessions. Those are fun. <laughs> it's one of those where like I can come up with ideas quick, but you won't when you get immediate feedback that's negative towards those, but you never know when one of those really bad ideas triggers a really good idea in somebody else. That's the problem with that scenario where you're just constantly giving all of that. If you can find some way to use like some of how he explains this, where you can have your idea generation process be independent of the entire group, do it ahead of time, and then come together to discuss which ones people liked the most, you're technically doing the same thing. You're coming up with a whole bunch of ideas and then giving feedback on them. But because it's put together in like a, a collaborative list, even you, you can even, I've done this before, I do it to where it's anonymous, where you actually don't know who came up with the idea. But it may trigger something in someone else. I don't know how many times, I, I, I can count many times where I've done this when somebody put something on the list and either it triggered something in me, it's like it was a terrible idea, but it at least got us to the right answer time it was done. That That's huge, but mm -hmm. many, many, many places don't do it that way. And, and it's kind of countercultural in the corporate world for sure, probably even still today. I don't really know. I don't work in that world. I don't want to work in that world. But if you do, I'm guessing that you don't do it this way. I, I just don't <laughs> see that overtaking the general population anytime soon. Yeah. All right, chapter nine is Diamonds in the Rough. And uh, this is kind of the hiring chapter, 
I guess. <laughs> yeah. Uh, many organizational processes neglect individuals' potentials, and that is because of the processes that they use for hiring. If you think about how most people hire, it's actually pretty stupid. <laughs> Now, one of the things that I added into our hiring process, which I feel like made it much uh, more effective, is we didn't just do a skills test, which he talks about work samples and things like that. Those are great. I'm not uh, negating the value of those, but I feel like the emotional intelligence aspect or the soft skills aspect of this, which there's a whole interesting story behind that term soft skills in here too. I don't think it was in this chapter, but I think, uh, but he does talk about how soft skills were used to define the skills in the military that weren't the firing of the guns. So those were the metal things, the metal objects, the hard skills, everything else that wasn't that was considered soft skills. I don't know if I, I don't know if I believe that that's where that term actually came from, but it's a cool story anyways. (laughs) Uh, Regardless, those are the things that really make the difference. And so um, the family business, we've actually got assessment and skill building tools that help people identify their soft skills and develop them. And uh, they can be developed. Um, It's not just your, you know, like IQ, you're born with it, whatever. Uh, These are things that can be developed just like he's talking about throughout this, this book. So any hiring process that doesn't take into consideration those types of skills, I feel like is a flawed hiring process. Now they're hard to, to measure, but it can be done. And so uh, I was a little disappointed that he didn't really talk about that part of the process. But he does share the story about the guy who eventually became an, an astronaut and how that particular process wasn't uh, wasn't the type of process that was going to highlight the skills that were really going to make him a great astronaut. But also I've seen that applied in other companies and, and organizations as, as well. So we need to rethink this this whole thing. And kind of like chapter seven, I don't know that you're going to just walk in and be like, hey, people, here's the right way to do it. And they're just going to fall in line. It's not going to be that that simple. But step one is obviously recognizing the, the flaws with the current system. One of the biggest flaws is the Peter principle, <laughs> which is that people at work tend to get promoted to their level of incompetence. This makes total sense. Like I've seen this all the time in the uh, the startup world specifically, because you've got people who are coders and developers and then they are good at their job. So what happens? They get promoted. They're a manager now and they don't like managing people. So <laughs> I just want to go back to doing what I was doing. Uh, but that's not just in, in Silicon Valley. That is the, the default path. So we should be looking for something uh, a little bit different. One of the things he kind of points out here is that when you are in the hiring process, like when you're hunting for people, looking for their learning ability is a huge deal. And he told the story, I think it was him that was in a, a job interview and he mentioned something about magic. And he ended up doing some card tricks for the for hiring Harvard, person. Yeah. Is that Harvard? Is that what it was? Yeah, he was trying to get into Harvard and he didn't That's think he had a chance. That's what it was. So he he... He was asked, like, how did you learn to do these tricks? And he's like, well, you know, I saw a magician do it, and I tried to figure out how he did it, kind of made it up my own way of doing it, read a little bit, found this, found that, talked to this person, and ended up doing, like, this impromptu card trick performance for this person, and uh, ended up getting in as a result of that because he realized this guy can learn. He knows how to learn, and that that's a big deal. Like, that's... 
that's a very important aspect when it comes to finding people. Because if folks, so like, that's just who I am. Like, you're not going to change who I am. Like, if somebody says that, you immediately know they're not someone who's willing to learn and get better at something. They're just going to be stuck in their ways. And in some ways, being stuck in your ways is okay. But there are many situations where you're going to have to compromise, flex, and learn to improve. And that's the component of finding someone that you're going to, I guess, put a lot more emphasis on. They may not necessarily have the skills right now, thus the title of this Diamond in the Rough. And uh, so, But you're going to be trying to find somebody that can work their way into that role. Yeah, that actually sets up the epilogue perfectly. So let's go there. That may actually even be where that story comes from, but it definitely is an extension of chapter nine because in the epilogue, that's really where he's sharing a lot of his personal story. And I remember that story about wanting to get into Harvard. He went to the interview, he grabbed a box, he says at the beginning of the story and stuck it in his pocket. And then it's not till the end that he reveals what that box was. It was the deck of cards and he was showing them some tricks. But that interviewer also, like that interview was supposed to be an hour. He finds out afterwards and it was three hours and he didn't really think anything of it. That interviewer though, I was impressed with, uh, and he kind of calls this out, but uh, that is really brilliant of that interviewer to not ask, how did you do that? But how did you learn to do that? That's the thing with interviews specifically is you can't just walk into it with a big list of, of questions. You have to feel it out. It has to be a live conversation. You have to riff off of each other. It's kind of like improv in a way. And he talks about that actually at some point in this book too, about uh, comedians and, and stuff like that. But um, so Adam Grant basically was, was not, he is the the diamond in, in the rough. He is the guy with the hidden potential, which is, you know, in the epilogue, I feel like this is a really effective way to, to wrap this all up because he's basically saying like, if I could do this, you could do this. Cause he not only gets into Harvard, then it's like, he takes the writing test and he fails it. And they're like, well, you should take this remedial writing class. And uh, he goes out and he asks advice from all these people, tracks down the guy who interviewed him. And he's like, why did you uh, recommend, you know, that I, I get into to Harvard. And he's like, well, because I saw, you know, this in you. And then he asked him, you know, should I take this class? And he's like, well, it's up to you. But if you take the the big class, you know, the, the hard one, you're going to have to learn to learn. That's going to benefit you in the the long run, basically. This is what I saw in you. And so Adam Grant pieces this all together. And he's like, yeah, it's going to be hard, but I'll just do it. He ends up getting the only A in the class. And the rest, as they say, is is history. <laughs> Uh, he does talk about how when he started to write a book, he wrote over 100,000 words, got some feedback on it, and basically it was boring. So he threw it all out except for like four pages, he said, and then wrote it all again. And that's part of the process. Um, but the the things that I jotted down from this this last couple pages in the epilogue here that really stood out to me are that people with bigger dreams go on to achieve greater things. So it is important to think big. And then you don't fail because of a lack of ability. You fail if you don't learn and grow. And then he, he talks about the difference between imposter syndrome and growth mindset, which this, I feel, is also very helpful. Uh, imposter syndrome is I don't know what I'm doing. It's only a matter of time until everyone finds out. Growth mindset is I don't know what I'm doing yet. It's only a matter of time until I figure it out. And he, he shares how imposter syndrome is actually a paradox. Others believe in you 
but you don't believe in yourself yet. You believe yourself instead of them. And I was like, Adam Grant, you see me. (laughs) That whole imposter syndrome stuff. Like he's got a, there's a little cartoon in the back where someone says, nice job or well done. I forget what the phrase is, but he's like, you have to say that you're my family. And then the next one is nice job. It's like, well, you have to say that you're my friends. Nice job. Well, you have to say that you don't know me. Like, <laughs> like, okay. Well, then, at what point do you accept the compliment? At what point do you actually know what you're doing? That was kind of the mm-hmm. the the core takeaway from the epilogue that I had. It's like, okay, everybody's on a journey of trying to figure out what to do. So, where is that line that you're going to cross where you are someone who knows what they're doing? Like, never. So. You need to come to grips with that and just know that there's always somebody better than you, but there are also people who are not as far along as you. So you need to be aware of both sides of that spectrum. Yeah. And then the big ending with this, I guess, is it feels like is uh, page 233. There's a quote. It feels like others are overestimating you, but it's more likely that you're underestimating yourself guilty. And then he says that success is more than reaching our goals. It's living our values. And that is essentially what Rachel and I are teaching in the life theme cohort. So I love that part. Uh, but I feel like just the way he wraps this all up is kind of perfect. I don't think there's a better ending to a book that I have come across. Um, this one just, just was, uh, was very, very well done. He did nail it. I will say that. Yeah. Very well done, Adam Grant. All right. And then after this, there's like different action items that you can take, but I don't think that's really worth, uh, worth going through, but essentially he's got like all these lists for all the different chapters that, uh, go along with, with this. And, uh, I think it's a good reference, but you and I can come up with our own action items. And I think the bookworm audience is smart enough to do so also. Uh, but I think it's a cool addition. I, I wish more books would would do that. All right. Uh, I guess that's it then. Should we go to action items? We should. All right. So I've got the one that I mentioned previously, which is a, an aspirational one. And that's just to ask for advice, not for feedback. And uh, I intend to do that tactically. I'm not going to do that with every rough draft that I I make, but when I am sharing something that I am going to release with uh, people who I trust, that is going to be the approach that I take. So I don't know if that's actually going to get done, done before next time, but it's going to be one of those things that kind of influences my perspective. I do have another action item though, which doesn't come from any of the content in the book itself. But he actually has a quiz that he mentions after the epilogue. Did you see that in, in yours? I did, which is why I wrote it down as well. Was it in the <laughs> okay. acknowledgments? Is that where it was? Maybe, but there's a website. I think it's just andrewgrant.com, but uh, I don't remember what exactly it was. I am a, a enthusiast of assessments, shall we say. <laughs> So I know this is going to be more of a quiz, not an assessment, but I am interested to see how he put this together, and I am going to take that before next time. 
Yeah, I'm going to find it. It's in here somewhere. But yes, that was the one action item I had as well. I was running through the... It was somewhere right after that. Gosh, that's going to bug me. But you're right, it's towards the back. Anyway, I want to do that as well. Because I know that Adam, based on what I've seen here, has done a lot of research, knows what he's doing with this. So I want to go through that because I want to know. I want to know the answers. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So style and rating. And my book, so I'll go first. Uh, I really enjoyed this book. I think it is really well put together. Uh, it definitely follows the three-part structure that a lot of productivity and self-help and business books uh, tend to use. However, I feel like this is maybe the best uh, execution of it, <laughs> or at least it's a very high-level execution of that strategy. The parts are very different. They don't feel like one long narrative that could have just all been combined together. It does kind of feel like three separate ideas. And I like how balanced they are. I like how each of them has the three different chapters. And the chapters tend to, tend to tie together. But also the parts tend to kind of lead into one another. So I think it's uh, it's really well done. And the style itself is is very uh, entertaining, I'll say, for this type of book. It's kind of interesting that he talks about when he first started to write a book, he got feedback that it was too academic. And because um, I feel like he's a very, very good storyteller. He shares little snippets and things here and there, which occasionally are, are funny. And there's lots of really cool visuals. I don't know if you follow Adam Grant at all on social media, but I every once in a while I'll see those those visuals appear via somebody else's Instagram feed. I'm not really ever on Instagram, so I'm not like seeking out more people to, to follow, but I've definitely seen those, those visuals that he has every couple pages, which kind of just, you mentioned like the, the cartoon sort of a thing. That's what they look like. So they're kind of whimsical. They're kind of fun. They keep it a little bit light and uh, they're a great addition to this book. Uh, he also has some really cool charts and Venn diagrams and, and visual ways of explaining the, the concepts, which I think are, are very effective. Uh, what I, was a little bit surprising to me was the way that he condensed the research that he did. It almost feels a little bit like he's dumbing it down for us. Like, oh, I read all these research reports and uh, not only do you not have to, but here's really like the Cliff Notes version that you need to know. I'm not sure how I feel about that particular piece. I don't think it necessarily detracts, but it, it is a little bit jarring because I kind of expected he's a researcher. He's going to sh share with us the research and he literally didn't do that at all. He just shared the takeaways. And then there's the, the uh, bibliography, obviously, if you want to want to dig deeper. I think that's probably the right approach, but uh, I, I do wish he would have gone into it a, a little bit more detailed in uh, in some of that stuff. But it's made up for, in my opinion, by the fact that the uh, the storytelling is is so well done. The the if you're gonna there's really like two types of things that I'm really looking for with these these mind nodes in addition to like the single statements that jump out to me. It's the stories about events that I don't really I haven't heard before or the uh, little bits of research like the Roy Baumeister willpower study is the one that comes to mind because that's that's the thing that kind of got me into the whole productivity world. But like understanding that 
research and how willpower is, is limited, obviously you got to decide what you're going to do with that. But I thought that was, that was fascinating. So I like that kind of stuff. And that is, that's kind of missing from here. However, the, the stories are, are great. And he's a, a really good storyteller. And it's not just, Hey, I read this stuff about these people. Like he went to Finland and talked to a bunch of people. <laughs> uh, it feels like he's put a ton of work into this and this is sort of his life's work. Uh, I don't know if that's fair because he's got several other books and, and the other books are, are good too, but this one is great. And uh, I'm going to rate this five stars. I think this is perfect for anybody who is in the, the bookworm audience. You're going to get a lot out of this. Even if you're new to bookworm, you're new to like the whole idea of the self-help nonfiction personal development type books. I mean, if you're going to pick a place to start, this is a great one. I think it's kind of interesting. I feel like I haven't really seen a whole lot of books on this topic of hidden potential other than the rah-rah Tony Robbins unleash the, the giant within sort of a thing. Um, which to be fair, I haven't read, read those, those types of books cause they just kind of were off putting to me, but this one I, I really enjoyed. So yeah, five stars and definitely go add this one to your bookshelf. How many times in the process of recording did you say that's a great segue for going into the next section? Like, how many <laughs> times did that happen, right? And that was not me. I, I am not that good at putting together a structure for Bookworm, just to be clear. That is simply Adam Grant being that good of a person of putting the stories together where they move on to the next section that well he has this put together in a way like he's written this in a form that is really high level, you know, to have three parts, but then have three chapters in each one and then have each chapter flow into the next, but each part flow into the next start it and end it really, really well. Like you don't run across books in the nonfiction world in the business and self-help world, especially that are this well organized from like a plot line, if you will. In the fiction world, you run across it a lot because it is a storyline from start to finish. But I feel like Adam has taken that concept and put it into this book. So he did an amazing job. You can tell that he's been writing for a long time. So it is absolutely something he's done uh, to get better at. So he's definitely eating his own dog food in this case and is learning how to be a better writer as he's writing about learning. So very meta. This is probably one of my favorite books that we've covered. So it's easy to say this is a 5-0 uh, for me. And I just love that he has put together so many of like our favorite topics, but in a way that makes sense as far as like growing as a human being and becoming a better person. He, he puts the whole concept together in a way that I don't think I could even have imagined trying to come up with. But we do so much of this productivity habits, like making myself a better person. But like we talk about that a lot on Bookworm, but I don't think we've run across somebody that's just taken that whole concept and packaged it like this. So he did a very, very good job. I don't need to keep gushing about it because you should go pick this up and read it for sure. But it is absolutely something that... Uh, that I have loved reading, and I think you were spot on in saying like this is a great place to start if you're getting into this realm of books. Pick this one up, please. Do yourself a favor. Adam Grant is a great one to start with. All right. Well, let's put Hidden Potential on the shelf. What's next, Joe? Uh, up next is Who Not How. 
This is by Dan Sullivan and Dr. Benjamin Hardy. We've covered these authors before. This was a recommendation on the club by Mark. And uh, Mark has like his own little book review on it on the club. So it's uh, a little bit of a precursor to the show, I guess. But uh, anyway, looking forward to it. It'll be a good one. Awesome. I have not read this one, but I have read summaries of this when we were working with the uh, the business coach. This is one of those concepts that fits well with uh, chapter eight from, yeah. from today's book. And what's after that, Mike? After that is a book that everyone in my circles is talking about called Same as Ever by Morgan Housel. Morgan Housel, uh, I know him as the author of The Psychology of Money, but haven't actually read that book. And it sounds like is also a blogger, but have never come across any, literally anything that Morgan Housel has written, at least that I know of. However, I know several people who said that this book is amazing. So it's out now. Let's read that one. Cool. Any gap books? Uh, I have one I'm about done with. It's called Live Not By Lies. It's by Rod Dreher. This is definitely in the Christian book world. Um, probably just going to leave it there. It's a, I, I would say that's a very controversial book, depending on what side of the political spectrum you sit on. So <laughs> I'll just leave that one there. How about you? That's, that's fair. Uh, I just ordered a book, uh, but it has not come yet. Uh, I mentioned Arthur Brooks in The Second Mountain earlier. And... Uh, Arthur Brooks has a new book out, which he co-wrote with Oprah Winfrey called Build the Life You Want, The Art and Science of Getting Happier. And I really enjoyed the last Arthur Brooks book that we read. So I have high expectations for this one. I feel like this is one of those ones that could actually come back as a bookworm book later, but we'll see. All right. I will wait with bated breath. And find out. (laughs) Awesome. Well, if you are an amazing person and you read along with us, you need to go pick up Who Not How by Dan Sullivan and Dr. Benjamin Hardy. And we will cover that one with you in a couple weeks.